This morning I preached to you God's word from Genesis 6, the verses 5 to 8, and from Hosea 11, verses 8 and 9. Genesis 6, beginning at verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We turn to Hosea 11, the verses 8 and 9. The Lord is speaking. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't work to start in the middle of a story. You cannot begin reading a novel halfway through and make sense of what's happening. You won't understand why people are doing the things they choose to do. Similarly, you can't start watching a movie halfway through and make sense of what is going on. It's hard to figure out people's motivations when you don't know the backstory. Sometimes you walk into a room when people are in the middle of a discussion. It's difficult to participate and to say things that are appropriate, that are appropriate without knowing what has already been said. In a few weeks' time, we are going to celebrate Christmas, the coming of Jesus Christ in human flesh. But if you start with the baby being born in Bethlehem, you start in the middle of the story, and there'll be things that don't make any sense. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Why did the angels sing their celebratory songs? Why were the shepherds' hearts filled with fearful anticipation? Why did Simeon and Anna rejoice at the presentation of Jesus in the temple? Why did wise men come from afar? to inquire about the birth of Christ? Why was Herod so panicked that he killed all the baby boys around Bethlehem? It's hard to make sense of all that happens around the birth of Jesus if you don't know the backstory. This morning I want to trace with you the roots of the story about the birth of Jesus Christ. This story begins in the heart of God. It is rooted in the grief of God, something we don't often consider. When we talk about man's rebellion and sin, we're more inclined to speak about God's anger. 
But if God's actions were rooted in his anger against sin, he would have destroyed the earth and he would have wiped out mankind. God didn't do that. Not when Adam and Eve rebelled against him. Not at the time when the earth was filled with violence and wickedness. When God sent the flood. Not even when his own people Israel rejected him and turned away from him. Instead, God was deeply grieved. If you don't understand that grief in the heart of God, you won't understand the glory of the baby in a manger in Bethlehem. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. It is because of his compassionate heart that God sent his son to redeem us. We'll consider God's grief at our rebellion and wickedness and God's compassion in determining to redeem us. Let's begin with what Genesis 6 tells us about God's response to the corruption and wickedness, the corruption and the violence God saw on earth in a time prior to the flood. Genesis 6, 5 and 6 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Why was God's heart grieved? Why did he regret making man? These words indicate some kind of personal offense or betrayal. What has man done that is so significant it brought tears to the heart of God? To understand God's grief, we need to remember that God is the creator of this world. He made the world and all that's in it. He made man in his own image and likeness as the crown of his creation. As creator of this world, God is its owner. It all belongs to him. And when God evaluated the work of his hands, he said that it was very good. But what did we do? We turned away from God and listened to the voice of the devil. We rebelled against God and did what he expressly forbade. A man sinned and brought God's curse upon himself and all of creation. The effects of man's sin get passed along through the generations. By the time of Noah, the people of God had intermarried with those who didn't acknowledge God in their lives. They were led astray, following the ways of the world. When God looked down from heaven, he saw a stinking mess. God saw that the wickedness of man was great. How bad was it? All over the inhabited world, there were people who were doing things that were evil in the sight of God. And that's not all. God being God can look further than just people's outward actions. What did he see? He saw that every intention of the thoughts of these people's hearts 
was only evil continually. Their evil deeds came from corrupt hearts, hearts that had no room for him, even though he was the one who had created them and that he was the one who provided them with every blessing they enjoyed. Can you see, beloved, why God regretted the fact that he had created man? Can you understand God's grieving heart? I don't think that we can understand God's grief properly unless we appreciate the connection between God and man. God's grief only makes sense in light of the fact that God's relationship with man is deeply personal, deeply relational. God created man in such a way that we would be able to know him. Plants and animals do not know God. They cannot worship him. But that's different with people. God made himself known to Adam and Eve. He walked and he talked with them. He had a relationship with them. As human beings, we were created. We were hardwired to love God. Our love relationship with God shaped every part of us. Every thought and motive, every desire and decision, all our words and our actions were God-directed. As first created, man recognized God's existence, his authority, his majesty, and his glory. Our nature was such that as people we chose to serve him with all our time and energy. That's what we were created to do. We were made to love God, to live with Him in eternal blessedness. Part of living with God and joining unity is living according to His commands. Jesus made this clear. In John 14, 15, He said, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. John echoes His teaching in 1 John 5, verse 3, saying, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. When our hearts are God-directed, we delight in doing the will of our Father in heaven. When you love someone, you want to serve them. You desire to please them. You find joy in their joy. That's how every human being who was ever given life and breath was meant to live. But with the fall into sin, much of that changed. We're still hardwired to love. But instead of being God-directed, our love is diverted elsewhere. Genesis 6 verse 5 makes it clear that some other love has claimed the hearts of human beings because we no longer delight in serving God or find joy in pleasing Him. Our sinful human hearts no longer recognize God's authority or His majesty or glory. So what is it that has diverted our hearts away from loving God? 
Paul answers this question in 2 Corinthians 5. There he speaks about the reason why Jesus Christ had to come into this world. Paul says that Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The reason God needed to send his son into this world was to redeem and renew us so that we might no longer live for ourselves. So what's taken the place of God in the human heart? Ourselves. Me, myself, and I. What has replaced man's hardwired love for God? It's love of self. Why was every intention of people's hearts only evil all the time? Because we push God aside and we put ourselves in the center. Instead of acknowledging God as creator, as ruler over all, we want to be rulers over ourselves. I want to live life my way, by my own rules. We're obsessed with our own comfort and pleasure and happiness. Matthew 22 tells us about how the Jewish leaders asked Jesus questions to test him. One of them, a lawyer, asked him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In other words, take the focus off of yourself. Put it back on God. Love God with your whole being. Besides this greatest commandment, Jesus added a second like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why did Jesus add those words? As yourself. Because he knows our sinful hearts are self-directed. That by nature I'm inclined to serve myself, to do what pleases me. Can you understand, beloved, that God regretted that he had made man? Can you see why he grieved deeply at our rebellion and wickedness? As creator, God loved the creatures he had made. The Bible speaks about God's continued care over all of creation. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. In verse 16, the psalmist says, You open your hand, you desire, you satisfy the desire of every living, of every living thing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that God makes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Precisely because God cares so much that his heart is grieved. Now please consider with me what Hosea tells us about the Lord's relationship with his people Israel. Hosea 11 begins with the Lord saying, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The Lord's love for his people is evident from the beginning of Israel's birth as a nation. 
God saw his people languishing in Egypt. Out of his great love for them, he commissioned Moses to deliver them from slavery. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God forced Pharaoh to let his people go by bringing horrible plagues on Egypt. He led them through the midst of the Red Sea while Pharaoh and all his hosts drowned in the midst of it. God brought his people into the wilderness. He led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He helped them defeat their enemies on the way. He granted them all they had need of. He provided manna for their daily sustenance. He gave them water from the rock to drink. Even their shoes did not wear out on the way. God defeated the nations that attacked them, and he brought his people into the promised land. Through Hosea, the Lord speaks about how he expressed his love for his people in days of old. In Hosea 11, 3 and 4, the Lord reminisces about the childhood of his son Israel. He says that it was I who taught Ephraim, that's another name for Israel, to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love. The picture of God as Father taking his son Israel by the hand, teaching him how to walk. We have a picture of a parent loving and nurturing his little boy, rejoicing in his development, encouraging him in the right way. But how did Israel respond to the Lord's love and kindness? God's people rejected him. They turned away from him to serve other gods. Despite his people's stubbornness and rebellion, the Lord continued to love them. He put up with their grumbling in the wilderness. He rescued them time and again during the period of the judges. Despite Israel's unfaithfulness, the Lord remained faithful. But his people's actions grieved him. They grieved him deeply. Israel was not just any nation. They were God's own people, the ones with whom he had established a special bond. Beloved, think about situations where a child turns away from his or her parents, even though they sincerely loved and cared for him or her. Think about when a husband or wife rejects their life's partner to begin a relationship with someone else. It is a betrayal of that person's love. And it hurts very deeply. It's how the Lord experienced the unfaithfulness of his people. It grieved him immensely. Beloved, can you understand what happens when you sin against God? not just that you're breaking some rules. It's not simply that you're offending God. When we were created, we were hardwired to love God and to live in intimate communion with Him. He has redeemed us so that we might be restored to the wonderful position 
of being his sons and daughters, being part of God's family. God loves us with a deep and abiding love. And so it hurts when we reject God's love because we consider something else more satisfying. It grieves God when we turn away from him to seek our pleasure, our satisfaction in other things. It breaks his heart to see his children reject him and turn away from him. Brings us to our second point, and we'll consider God's compassion in determining to redeem us. The question is, what will God do when we rebel against him? What happens when instead of loving and serving God, we determine that we're going to live life on our own terms? What happens when we reject his rule because we're determined to live life our own way? How will God respond to people who choose to love themselves over all else? In Genesis 6, we read of the Lord's response to the rebellion and wickedness of mankind. He said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. For God, this was not an act of vengeance. Here we see the Lord responding with a righteous judgment. God is saying, enough. I made you. I own you. I provided every good thing that you could ever want. I made a wonderful life for you, more wonderful than anything you could ever have imagined. And yet you reject me. You turn your back on me. God had every right to wipe out mankind, to wipe the earth clean. Seems like this would be the end of the story. But it's not. Genesis 6 verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In an act of sovereign grace, God put his favor on Noah and his family. You know the story. They were chosen by God's grace to survive the waters of the flood with some animals in the ark. In the flood, God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. But God preserved Noah and all who were with him in the ark. It's very important to know what happens after the floodwaters recede and the earth dries. God makes a covenant with Noah. Noah took some of the clean animals and birds and presented them as a burnt offering to the Lord. Genesis 8:21 says, "And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil." From his youth, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. What's remarkable about this verse is that the Lord acknowledges that man's sinful state has not changed. God says that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. To put that into the language of our confessions, 
We are all conceived and born in sin. The Lord acknowledges that mankind is not going to love and serve him. And yet he vows never to curse the ground again because of man or to strike down every living creature as he did in the flood as a sign that he would never destroy the earth by means of a flood again, the Lord gave the rainbow. It's not just a sign for us. It's also a reminder for God himself of the covenant he made with Noah and with all of creation. Why did God spare Noah and his family? Keep reading in Genesis, you see that the Lord repopulates the earth through his descendants. We also quickly see that God establishes another special relationship, this time with Abraham. The Lord made great promises to Abraham about becoming the father of many nations. But he also makes a special promise that it was through his offspring that all the families of the earth would be blessed. That was a promise about the coming Messiah who would redeem us from our rebellion and sin and turn our hearts back to loving and serving God. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Jacob. It's from his family that God raised up the people of Israel. Just like in the days of Noah, there came a time in Israel's history where God's people utterly rejected the Lord. They turned away from him to serve other gods. Instead of trusting in the Lord to care for them, they turned to various world powers. They made military alliances with them to feel safe from the attack of foreign armies. The people left God behind in the pursuit of what they thought would be a better life. They lived life their way. They did as they pleased. Hosea 11 tells us about the Lord's reaction to his people's rejection of his love. There was only one thing that would catch their attention. It was for God to chastise them for their sins. Hosea speaks of how the Lord planned to give them over into the hands of the Assyrians. Their cities would be destroyed and they would go off into captivity. It was only when his people experienced the consequences of their sins that they would learn what it meant to live apart from God, apart from his blessings. God's goal was to call his people to repentance and life. And the most striking thing about Hosea's prophecy is that he reveals God's heart to us. In Hosea 11 verse 8, the Lord cries out, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Adma and Zeboim were cities that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. God's heart bleeds at the thought of the ruthless king from Assyria coming to ravage his people. He says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Why was God's heart stirred 
when he thought of the Assyrians coming to pillage and destroy his people? Where did his compassion come from? God's compassion is rooted in his tender love for his people. In Hosea 11, we see the Lord calling Israel his son. The one he took by the arms to teach him to walk. His son whom he nurtured and cared for. His son whom he loved. Think, beloved, of the words of King David when he heard of the death of his son Absalom. Absalom had incited a revolt. He tried to take the throne from his father David. He was utterly self-centered, rebellious, unloving. And yet when he died, David was deeply moved. He wept. He cried out, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Even though Absalom revolted against his father, David continued to love him. He demonstrates a father's love for his children. It's a picture that helps us to understand God our Father's love for us, his children. Why did the Lord determine not to wipe out his people Israel? Why was a remnant saved? Because of God's compassion and mercy. Compassion is a word that describes the empathy and concern and kind-heartedness you have for another. When you show compassion or mercy to someone, you give them something freely, something undeserved. You do so without expecting to receive anything in return. God spared his people utter destruction. His heart did not allow him to bring on Israel the punishment that they deserved. God spared a remnant of his people. He brought them back from captivity. He restored them as a nation. He granted them many renewed blessings. Why? Because ultimately God's purpose was, was to fulfill the promise made to Abraham that through his offspring all nations would be blessed. God's plan was to raise up a redeemer from among his covenant people. That's the backstory to what we celebrate at Christmas. Mankind deserved to be annihilated at the time of the flood. Israel was so stubborn and rebellious, God would have been justified in wiping them off of the face of the earth. And we, beloved by nature, share in the same sinful hearts as those people living long ago. While we were hardwired to love God, the fall into sin changed us, so we're now wired to love ourselves. By nature, we rebel against God. We seek to please ourselves. It grieves God 
deeply. But God had a plan to redeem us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Think about what that cost God, beloved. We've spoken about how God considered Israel his firstborn son and the lengths to which God went to redeem him and prosper him. We've considered how God's compassion was stirred at the thought of bringing judgment on his dearly loved son Israel. Yet God was willing to send his son to save us. God did so knowing that Jesus would have to suffer and die. He'd have to suffer God's rejection and come under his wrath. Do you see the Father's love for you, beloved? How it cost him his dearly beloved son? Do you understand why God was willing to pay the price to buy you and make you his own? It's because of God's heart. It's because of his compassion and his mercy. It's because of his deep love for us. God didn't want to leave us with sinful and corrupt hearts. He sent his son to redeem us, to restore us to righteousness and life. He sent Jesus to change our hearts so we would no longer be controlled by selfishness and live for our own pleasures. In Christ, our Heavenly Father redeems and renews us. He changes us from the inside out. I want to quote that text from 2 Corinthians 5.15 again. Paul tells us that Jesus Christ died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Part of God's purpose in sending his Son was to renew us by working a new heart in us, a heart which is so thankful for his redeeming work that our greatest delight in life is to love God a heart that's directed against, away from me and my wants and desires, which is once more focused on loving God and loving my neighbor. If you understand the backstory, it makes the celebration of Christmas a joy and a delight. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing from Psalm 107, stanzas 1, 2, and 8. <laughs> 